We pray that your word would go forth by the power of your spirit. And as you have decreed, it shall not return void and that it shall prosper in the thing for which you have sent it. We ask, Father, for the work of your spirit. Strengthen, sanctify, and save, we pray. In your great and holy name, amen. You may be seated. We, we closed, we closed last week, we closed last week with the testimony of the Apostle Paul and his experience of saving grace through the gospel. And this morning is really the end of that section, verse 16, now it moves into verse 17, and that experience of grace that God had saved a sinner like Paul, Paul now erupts or is moved to the praise of God, the God who saved him. And so we're reminded right here that each of us, through our experience, through the saving mercies of God in the gospel, it should move us and cause us to be a worshipful people. And so like Paul, we have a word here to declare. We have a, a praise to the God of grace in verse 17. And I want you to notice that, that not only do we have a word of praise to God in verse 17, but our passage also speaks to us about God, about God, the doctrine of God. Theology, theology is essentially the study of God. We think of those areas of study, biology, the study of life, theology, the study of God, or about God, a, a word about God. And typically when you study the doctrine of God, it's called theology proper. And so this morning, as we look at this truth and description from the apostle about God, not only do we see a praise to God, but we are learning something about God. And we should realize that as God's people, if we are to serve God, if we are to worship God, we have to know God. And here we are learning something about him. When we catechize our children, or when no, new converts are learning the Christian faith, we typically start with the reality of God. Now for generations, that's been taken for granted in the West. There was an assumption that everyone at the sound of our ears knew that there was a God. We no longer can take that assumption. So we begin with God. Listen to the catechisms, how they do this. The Baptist catechism in question one, the Baptist catechism in question one says, who is the first and chiefest being? Answer, God is the first and chiefest being. The Westminster, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way. You're familiar with this. Question one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
So if we're if we are to know the chief of all beings, if we are to know uh, the God of the Scriptures, if we are to glorify God and to enjoy Him of God, we must learn something about Him. We must grow to know Him. And because we are dealing with a topic that is greater in depth and broader than the ocean, it's not an easy subject. Charles Spurgeon would describe the study of God like this. Quote, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. He goes on to say, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. He says it is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Our subjects... Our, our subjects, our other subjects, we can compass and grapple with. In them, we feel a kind of self-content uh, and our, our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, I am but of yesterday, and I know nothing. <laughs> no subject, he says, no subject of contemplation will tend to humble the mind than thoughts of God. End quote. Again, the, the context of this word of praise from the apostle. If you recall, he, as, as, as he was moved, as he reflected upon the, the saving grace of God in the gospel, as he considered God's grace and salvation, it's as if verse 17, Paul erupts, as we might say, with a, a word of praise, a, a doxology to God. <laughs> Now, in verse 17, you'll notice that we find that this doxology, this word of praise, it consists of four, four descriptions about the being of God. Four descriptions about the being of God. And let me say, uh, if... If you've ever seen my notes before, I have things typed out, but then as, as we get into early Sunday morning, there's handwritten stuff on top of it. And one of those is I begin to realize it, it, it is interesting, something we're not going to cover, but I do want you to notice there is something here in the text, in, 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 these, in the opening verses here uh, of this section, which began in verse 12 through, and 12 through 16, when Paul was writing about his experience of grace, he, would, he was speaking of God in terms of God's imminence, his nearness. God came in its personal language, intimate language. God saved him. He speaks of experiencing God's grace, God's mercy. Isn't that interesting? And he shifts from this, this nearness language of God, his imminence, to verse 17, this, this personal experience of God because of the Son, through the gospel, he erupts now in language of God's transcendence, God's beyond us, otherness. And so we have something here. I didn't develop that. I just, just noticed that, reflecting over the passage. There's something here about the mystery of God's imminence and transcendence, his nearness and his beyondness here. 
And maybe that'll be another time, another day, another study. But there's something here about that. But let's notice, though, how the apostle in clear language describes God. And let's and let these realities Listen, let these realities help us to grow in knowing God. In knowing God. And increasing, listen, and increasing confidence and faith in God. And ultimately, as we, as we look at the apostolic word concerning God... Let us, like Paul, let it lead us to the praise of God. To the praise of God in the worship of God. Let's begin. Verse 17. Verse 17. He opens after that, after speaking of God's saving grace, God coming to him as the chief of sinners, and how God saved him. And verse 17 Paul says, now, now to the king eternal. The first thing that he says about God is that God is king eternal. God is king eternal. That's his first description. It's literally, it's literally the king of the ages, as you might notice in some of your translations. We say it's translated often eternal because the idea is ages, age after age after age. That is eternity, ages. And he's king over it. The, the thought is that God is the great king who rules and reigns over the ages of history, past, present, and future. And the biblical emphasis here is the kingship of God. We find this, a lot of this kind of language in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, as we read this morning in Psalm 47, that God is king. But you find it also in the New Testament. But the idea is that he is king. The, the idea is that he is sovereign ruler over all things. And in particular, his creation. Uh, the very... To help you to grasp this, the, the very first verse in our Bible reminds us of this truth. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that first verse, we learn that there is God and everything else. Right? There is God, and there is His creation. There is God, as I heard Richard Barcellus say recently, and everything that's not God. Right? There is God, and there is the heavens and the earth, and all that He made. You remember in, in, in biblical thought, when they would say heavens, plural, it was the idea of there was the, the heavens where the, the birds flew, the sky. And then there's the heavens where the stars are at. And then there's the heaven where, where God's enthroned, heavens. And God made all of these things. He created the heavens and the earth. All that is seen and unseen, men and angels, solar systems and atoms and water and air. And the God who is the creator is the king who rules over all of his creation with omnipotent power. He not only rules all creation, but the scriptures also teach that he sustains and maintains creation moment by moment. When we speak of his sovereignty, we leave no stone unturned. 
Listen to Paul in writing to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. And he and he is before all things. And here in particular, this section is speaking of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And he's before all things, and in him all things consist, or that word has idea of, are held together. Again, all things of creation were created by God, for God. All things of creation, all things that are not God, are held together by his constant and, and constant sustaining, maintaining power. And if for a moment, if for a moment, he ceased to maintain and sustain, it would all be gone. <coughs> And not only, additionally, not only does God rule over all things that he made, from men's and angels to atoms to water and to air, not only does God rule over all things that he made, he reigns, what our text is emphasizing here, in the kingship of God, is that he, he reigns over every event, over every event, every moment in time. Though he is atemporal, every event in time he reigns over. That is, the entire, think of it this way, the entire historical process that began to unfold with created matter, the entire historical process he rules over and has ordained its beginning and its end. He's the king of the ages, the Lord of history. Nothing is outside of what he has decreed or his ordination or power. Now, I hope for some of you that's putting some new thoughts about God in your mind, seeing his greatness. His power, his sovereignty. Now, in contrast, though, when Paul uses the language king, and when the Old Testament, when the when the prophets would use the language king, this stands in contrast to earthly human kings and leaders. They only rule for a brief season, for a moment in time. And not only is the, the period limited for human kings, but, it, but the sphere of their reign is limited. Human kings only rule over a small area of earthly territory for a brief moment in time in history. And then they're gone. They're gone. Human kings, human rulers, and kingdoms come and go. They're only here but for a moment. And they pass away. Listen to, listen to God speak through the prophet Isaiah. He says this very thing. He says this very thing. Listen to his language here. And, and, and the poetic language that the Bible uses to describe this. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 23 through 25. Isaiah 40, verse 23 through 25. Listen to this. He, that is God, brings the princes that is, the rulers on the earth, to nothing, to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Verse 24. Now listen to his language here. Scarcely shall they be planted, 
Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall, shall their stock take root in the earth. When he has blown on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me, says God, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. In the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, we hear the words of, of, of for his time of the most powerful ruler upon the earth, King Nebuchadnezzar who God humbles, who God puts on his face. And we find in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, Daniel 4, verse 34, when Nebuchadnezzar says, And at, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. I blessed, he said, the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Do you see what he's doing? He's contrasting his temporalness, his lowness to the greatness of God. Verse 35 Verse 35, all the inhabitants, says Nebuchadnezzar, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He that is God does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Then he says, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see, Paul is teaching here that the triune God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God is the king of the ages. He is enthroned on high. And listen closely. Mankind in his fallenness, in his rebellion, he might deny it. He might fight against it. But this is the absolute reality of the universe. The nations of this earth might try to ignore it, rebel against his kingship, but they cannot prevent his omnipotent reign. He holds the breath of every politician in his hand. May they understand this. Every heartbeat of each and every one of us is sustained moment by moment by this king who is our God. Now listen, for the Christian, for us as the people of God, this should give us great inward peace. Day to day, and especially during times of trouble, shouldn't it? You know, sometimes... It comes across kind of flippant at times and silly. It'll be a difficult time, a difficult event, and someone will say, but God's still on the throne. But you know what? He is. He really is. <laughs> For the Christian, this should give us great inward peace. For the non-Christian, this reality and truth should lead you to great fear. Great fear. For we will all give an account to this king. We will all stand before his tribunal. All of us. None will escape. His tribunal, as we will all give an account and stand before him, our lives will be set before him and open. Every sin, every transgression against his kingship will be displayed for all to see. 
Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 7, verse 21, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And he says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Rebellion will not be tolerated. It will not be overlooked. It will not be placed underneath the rug. All must give an account. Each of us in this room, either Christ will bear the penalty for us, for our lawlessness, or you will bear it in everlasting and eternal hell. He is the king of the ages. Now, you know what's interesting here? As he's describing God, consider the book of Acts when Paul went through Ephesus and was preaching. It caused no little stir in that, that, that pagan city of the temple of Diana. You remember? In fact, the idol makers were rather upset because as the gospel spread as a proper understanding of God, not an idol, not an idol made with human hands, but the God of the ages. And as we're seeing here now in verse 17, number two, that God, look at, look at verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal. God is immortal. When he would begin to preach and teach concerning the one true God, false gods begin to crumble. And we see the stir that it causes in the book of Acts at Ephesus. And here he attributes that God, here he describes God is immortal. The God of his salvation, the God who saved him through Christ, is the immortal God. Now notice this. When to state, to say that God is immortal, verse 17, is to declare that God never ceases to exist. God is self-existing. He's the self-existing one. This follows his name that he's given us in the Bible, especially the name that was given to Moses in Exodus 3.14. God is the self-existing one and has always been and always will be. He is pure being, pure actuality. God never has potentiality. He is always, eternally, Actuality. God is the great I am whom I am. Exodus 3.14. He is the self-existing God. To declare that God is immortal is to say that God is incorruptible. He's not liable or subject to anything To say that God is immortal is to say that God is free of all changes. And in this case, the changes that would bring on, because this word has the idea that would bring on death or decay. When we begin to look at Scripture... And that the way that God is described in Scripture, we quickly realize how it stands in opposition to the religions of this world. The uniqueness of the God of Christianity, the biblical God. And in, in the age of, 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 of this age of postmodernism, as, as we declare the uniqueness and exclusiveness of our God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like scraping fingernails down a chalkboard to the world. 
We are not declaring our triune God as one God among the many. We are declaring that Islam is false. The thousands of gods of Hinduism, they are false. The gods of Mormonism is false. The Christ of the Jehovah Witness is no Christ at all, no Redeemer at all. We are saying that all of the religions outside of biblical Christianity are false. And they are no gods at all. And we're moving towards chapter 2 when we're going to begin to hammer away at the exclusiveness of Christ as our brother did this morning in our downstairs class. The truth of Christ and the exclusiveness of the gospel. We, 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 we also see here where those in the name of Christianity that may be in pulpits or that may be in universities and seminaries who speak of God in process, God who's changing that that really is another religion. It's not the God of the Bible. Our God is this self-existing, the King Eternal, the immortal God, that I am who I am. But listen... Again, the, the contrast as he speaks of God, the creator, king, the creator versus the creature, us, God and everything else, the creatures like us. He cannot die. He does not decay. He does not change. He's the immutable God, immutable God. However, human beings, we die, we decay, we change. Because of our sin, we are corrupted. We perish left to ourselves. We only receive true life, eternal life, as a gift from God because of the gospel. When, when we begin to understand God as eternal, God as immortal, God who is life, then the passages in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that speak of eternal life, really leap off the page. Listen to the language of Jesus in John 6, 56 through 58. Listen to this language. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as, as the living Father. And... The New Testament will speak of the living God, the living Father, like the prophets. They're picking that up from the Old Testament. And the living God is in contrast to the dead gods, the no gods of idolatry and paganism. This is the living God. As verse 57, Jesus says, As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. Life is being united to Jesus. This is the bread, he says, which came down from heaven. Again, notice his language. Not as your fathers ate the manna and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. John eleven twenty five. Listen to this. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? To Paul, Paul describes God here again. Verse 17, now to the king eternal. Secondly, he says God is immortal. And notice thirdly, thirdly. Number three, he says God is invisible. God is invisible. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. As we sung this morning, God is invisible. He is that which cannot be seen because he is eternal spirit. 
Listen, friends, God is never a fixed object. <laughs> He's never a fixed object. This is why we have the second commandment. You shall not make a, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any graven image. You see that? Now, however, we, we do have, and we only have, an image of God in Jesus Christ according to his humanity. Watch, are you catching my language? We only have an image of God in Jesus Christ according to what? His humanity. In Colossians 1, verse 15, and, a fee, and, and Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 3, both use this same language concerning Christ and his supremacy. He is, Colossians 1, 15, he is the image, he is the icon of the invisible God. And, and before Paul's done in this book, he's going to do it, he's going to say this again at the end of this book. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, notice this, it's in chapter 6 and verse 15 and 16, but notice what he says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 16, verse 16, who alone, speaking of God, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power, amen. Are these wonderful words? God is invisible. There's more to be said on that for time. Let's move on to number four. Verse 17 again. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. And then he says this, to God who alone is wise. That is, God is the only wise God. To God who alone is wise. Some of your, some of your Bibles will say, to God alone. Others will say, to, to God alone, the, or the only wise God, or to God who alone is wise Again, the point is there are many false gods made by fallen man. We saw this in our study recently of that opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, of that evil and dark exchange when men will exchange the truth, they will suppress the truth, and they will change the truth of the true God for, for an image made an image made, that is, man in his fallenness, his, his heart is an, is an idol factory. And so there are many false gods made by fallen man. However, there's only one, there's only one God that actually exists. The Bible teaches there is only one true God, and all other gods are false. And that's what we see here. To God alone, to who alone is wise. From the earliest of days, we find this concerning central to the, it's central to the life of the Hebrew people and their confession. And that early affirmation of faith, the Shammai, not only would they confess it every day, but they would teach it to their little ones. You know this in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord is Ahad, he's one. He's one. The Lord is one. And they would they would they were to know this. This was to be constantly set before them as a people who were now entering into a land that were filled with pagan gods and idolatry and surrounded by that. They were to know that the Lord their God is the is one and he alone is the true God. And there is no others. And if if, as, as some 
as, as some moderns want to twist the Shema and say, well, it means a little, it, it doesn't mean, it's not saying monotheism. They, they didn't have that understanding that early on. Uh, it was a kind of henotheism that is, it was just, he was just a God of, he was just their God. But they understood there were gods of other nations too, they believed. Really, is that why in two chapters earlier, is that why two chapters earlier Moses writes in Deuteronomy 4, verse 35? Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God and there is none other besides him. Or when Isaiah would say in Isaiah 43, listen to these words. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And by the way, this is what Jesus means when he looked at the Jews who did not believe on him and says, unless you believe I am he, you shall surely die in your sins. Jesus is saying, I'm Yahweh. <laughs> unless you believe I am he and you understand that I am he. Before me, he says, Isaiah 43, 10, before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, verse 11, I, even I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. Share that with your Mormon friends. There are no other gods. Neither before or after. Isaiah 44, 6 Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And Paul is preaching this in an ancient world that is filled with thousands of false gods. And we find ourselves now in almost the same setting. When Paul in the New Testament would speak of this and of idolatry and of the one true God, again, he would lift the same language from the prophets and from Moses in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 through 6. Notice the echo from the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one. He learned the Shammai from his, from his childhood. There is no other God but one. Verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, little g, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Verse 6. Yet for us, for us, there is what? One God. The Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, to whom are all things and through whom we live. And so we see here that God is the alone God, the wise, all-wise God. And then notice what he does next. It's just in closing, just in closing, verse 17. He, re, he responds to, he responds, he closes with an, 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 an expression of adoration toward God as this king eternal, this immortal, this invisible, this God alone who is wise. And, and look how, he, he, again, the, the, the words of adoration, this, it, they're just rolling out. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is, this is true. The only true and wise God, the King eternal, the immortal, invisible, only is worthy of honor and glory forever and ever. 
And so, in closing, the everlasting praise of His name is due to Him because He is our Creator and our Maker. Worship and praise are due to God because for us who are Christians, He's not only our Maker and Creator and Sustainer, but He's our Redeemer. He is the one who has saved us from the guilt of our sin and is just punishment. He has given us forgiveness through the work of the Son and has given us eternal life. And so he's worthy of this praise. If you're here this morning and you're apart from Christ, you, do not, you have not embraced the gospel by faith. You have not been saved by the redeeming blood of Jesus. God is worthy of your praise because he is your maker and creator. But he can be your redeemer this morning. <coughs> by his law, by his holy character, apart from Christ, you're condemned in your sin. You, you're separated from God. But if you had acknowledged your sin and your rebellion to him and turn to Christ as he's found in the gospel and receive him as a gift of his grace received through faith because of what Christ has done in him, you can have life. You, you can have forgiveness. You can be reconciled to God. Turn to him, be saved, flee to him and be saved. Now, like Paul, listen, people of God, like Paul, as Christians, as we, each of us, consider the grace of God that has come to us in the gospel, and we can all speak, all of our experiences don't necessarily sound like Paul. They're not all Damascus Road experiences. Some of you may have been Saved by hearing a faithful mom teach you at home and, and part of your instruction was she was teaching the Bible to you. Others was a, a grandparent or a friend or family member. Somehow you came in contact with the truth of the gospel and those experiences from, from a nine-year-old to someone who's quite older. God came to you and saved you. And those experiences are different. But as we consider our sin and guilt and that we're all worthy of condemnation and death and that God has come to us in the gospel and saved us, we should all be moved to a grateful response of praise and should be moved to exalt the name of God like Paul. Right? Secondly, God is, when we speak of him in terms like we've seen here this morning, especially in terms and language of his transcendence beyond us, our thoughts may be, is he even knowable? And the Bible and Orthodox historic Christianity has, with a unanimous voice, said, yes, God is knowable. He's truly knowable. You can know him in the language like Paul in this section of 1 Timothy. You can know him personally, intimately, and savingly. And why he is knowable, you will never know him exhaustively. John, the theologian and writer John Dick writing on the incomprehensibility of God. Listen to what he says here. And, and saints, consider this of, of now, but when we shall be with him. Listen how he describes this. He says this, quote, the saints 
in heaven will not be so enlarged as to be capable of contemplating at once or in detail the whole excellence of his nature. To comprehend infinite perfection, they, that is, the saints in heaven, they must become infinite, them, are infinite themselves. But we know that's not going to happen because that would make us what? God. And we're not. So he says, even in heaven, though, because we are not infinite, even in heaven, their knowledge will be partial but at the same time, their happiness will be complete because their knowledge will be perfect in the sense that it will be adequate to the capacity of the subject, although it will not exhaust the fullness of the object. Wow. We believe, he says, that it will be progressive and that as their views expand, their blessedness will increase. But it will never reach a limit beyond which there is nothing to be discovered. And when ages after ages have passed away, he that is God will still be the incomprehensible God. End quote. Isn't that wonderful? As we close and as we turn to the table, we consider the God who has saved us, the great throne God. And in the person of his son, his, he has come, as, the, as we've read here in verse 15 of, our, of this passage, that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. As we come to the table, we, we come to the Lord's table, this covenant meal of, of bread and, and wine, of, of that which he declares to be his flesh and blood in the sacrament, in the ordinance of this table. And in it, we are, we are set before us is the promise of the new covenant. The everlasting covenant of redemption now has come to be known to us in the covenant of grace as it, as it has come to us in the new covenant through and by the work and life of Jesus Christ. He says, as the prophet Isaiah would declare, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is, no, there is none other. Jesus, in praying to the Father, would say in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We hear and we know him through the pages of Holy Scripture. And as he set forth before us in the table, we see his body and his blood. This is the Lord's table. And we find that in him and in this table, we find that that which we eat and drink for us that believe, believe in the Christ who shed his blood for us is the promise of eternal life. The promise of eternal life, it's in the Son who has given himself for us. And so this morning as we come, as we eat, as we drink, we eat and drink of that which he has set before us. To remind us in our weakness that we might hold with our hands and taste with our mouth the promises, the assurance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let us pray.